What's up, investors? Now, on today's podcast, you're going to be listening to the recorded green sheet that we did showcasing all the monthly updates and news articles that are impacting investors. If you want to go back to the archives and check out this one in the future, go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash investor letter. But before we get going, I wanted to do a discussion over inflation. You guys don't know what the heck that is. Basically, it means that your money is less as the inflation rate is essentially eating it away. And why is there inflation? There has been a whole bunch of money printing as the Fed is printing money to keep the country afloat through the pandemic these last couple of years and all these government spending programs and entitlement programs. Whether it's right or wrong, who cares, right? As investors, how we put ourselves in the position to make out at the end of this and capture a lot of this money. And the way to do that is to start investing and get your money into things that go up with the pace and inflation so you can ride that wave. And if you're a little bit smarter than the average bear, you put it to things that also you can increase the value and do value add with it. You don't want to do, folks. You don't want to put your money into your savings account, making sub 1%. And I would also argue you don't want lazy equity Anything more than 20, 30% of equity in there to me is dumb, lazy money. You need to get that thing working. If your net worth is over three, $4 million, cool, do what you want. But most of the people who don't have their money working are living paycheck to paycheck under half a million, million dollars net worth. They need to get that moving. National inflation rate at the end of this past month was 6%, folks. Normally, it's half of that. And another website, if you want to really see what people really think it is, go to Shadow Stats to see what it really is. The government obviously wants to underreport this. A lot of people say buy gold, right? And a lot of people who say that are also getting money off of the commissions when you buy through their referral sources. So be on the lookout for those types of marketers. For me, what I'm doing, where I put my money where my mouth is, I'm buying real estate, right? That cash flows just in case there's a recession. You never know. I don't think that there's going to be one. But by investing in cash flowing real estate, I have my money in a stable asset that goes up and catches this wave. Bottom line, get your money to work. Where do you get the money from? What's your deployment plan? For most people, it's cash. Then once you exhaust that, and most of you guys don't have too much cash liquidity around because why would you, right? Want to get into stuff. So after that, the next thing is to get money from your HELOCs because it's a reversible way to get some money out of your uh, rental properties or the primary resident. Once you've got proof of concept or you need some more cash to invest, that's when you start to look to either do a cash out refi or sell the asset. Notice how I say cash out refinance after the HELOC because at that point, you're going to have to pay some lender fees there. Don't listen to the lenders because the lenders are always going to want you to do that first so they can cha-chain right to the bank. After you've burned through your cash, home equity, and you've sold off some lazy equity rentals, which I would argue anything that makes less than a 1% rent to value ratio, especially some of you guys with properties in Hawaii, Washington, California, get rid of those things. They're not good rental properties. They don't make a good amount of rent per the dollar that it costs. After that, now we start to look at the IRAs and then the 401ks and stuff like that. Now, this is where things get tricky, right? Because when you start to take money out of that, you have to save pace of penalties, which is not very much. And when you get money outside of all those garbage, marketable securities, you're going to make a lot more. So it's just a wash at that point. Usually the break-even point is about a year or even less or a couple of years at worst. But 
then it gets tricky because your AGI goes up also. For those of you guys who've been looking at 2022 uh, tax brackets, Marifal jointly, $340,000 is that big split where you want to stay under. If this is totally new to you guys, you guys need to check out the tax guide at simplepassacashflow.com slash tax. It is your job to understand this stuff. And if you guys want to do a free recorded call, I know all the other listeners are chomping at the bit to hear your story. To do that, send us an email at team at Pass and Cash Shell. We'll get you on the podcast for a full one hour strategy call in exactly your situation. If you want to check out all the past coaching calls that we've done, and we must have done maybe a few dozen at this point, go to the YouTube channel and look at the playlist for all the coaching calls. And if you guys are in the membership club, by going to simplepassacastle.com slash club, you'll get access to the members portal where we've arranged all the coaching calls in order of network. So my recommendation would be find what your network is and start with there and start to work your way down to get to some of the higher net worth folks calls. And you'll start to see the same themes over and over again. But for further ado, here is the show. And thanks for listening. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. What's up, folks? This is the monthly market update, January 2022. We're going to be going over the headlines. So the Easter egg for those of you guys come in in next week. We are going to be in Hawaii, hanging out. Have over 70-something participants here in Honolulu, Hawaii. If you get to know who I am, my name is Lane Kawaoka. I grew up in Hawaii, became an engineer, and then I didn't realize I didn't really like it. Luckily, I had invested in a rental property, which eventually grew to 11 rentals in 2015. And then I started investing in syndications and private placements. Today, well over 7,000 rental units, a billion dollars of assets under ownership. And I run the family office of Hana Mastermind, where we help you get from a million dollars to $10 million plus. If you guys haven't checked out the podcast, go to School Passive Cash Flow Passive Real Estate Investing. Check us out there. But today, day, just a little bit of teaching point. Most of our group are accredited investors these days. So sometimes we bash little non-accredited investors and they're buying little rental properties. Really, there's no reason why you want to own little rental properties. To me, makes no sense. Why would you want to take on the legal liability, the headaches? You're not able to do value add real estate, especially if you're doing it remote. If you do, you joke. <laughs> you're just reading too many BP blogs and stuff like that. It just doesn't work. Accredited investors invest in as a passive investor where they're not the active partner. They are the passive, the old money involved. And they let the young people do the hard work and they make money when they make money. But here are some of the conversations that we're having in the group. If you guys want to check this out on the YouTube channel, make sure you guys go to uh, simplepassivecashflow.com slash investor letter where we have all the YouTube uh, videos to, to check, take a look at all the charts and funny pictures we have in this presentation. So first thing off, teaching point. So multi-housing news releases what's hot and what's not in apartment interiors. So what's hot during Instagram moments, like nice backdrops, right? Places where like Instagram influencers or just just regular people want to take some pictures behind. Um, art and customization, luxury finishes for all. The, the Sort of the theory is if you have a class B apartment, 
you want to have a class A clubhouse so that when new tenants come in, they see the new facilities and they, they fall in love with the place. And if you have an A-class place, well, it needs to look like super posh, A+. If you have a class C apartment, like some of the ones that we have, they look like class B type of clubhouses. So this is from realpage.com. We're saying multifamily investment volumes soar in the Sun Belt. So this is not a new story to some of you all. The share of apartment sales in the Sunbelt market increased by 8.3% in the past 18 months, pushing occupancy and rent growth to record levels as of third quarter. So the Sunbelt states, if you draw a line from like Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, Alabama, I believe the next is Georgia, then out to the Carolinas and Florida, that's considered the Sunbelt, which is where most of the demographics are heading these days because for whatever reason, I don't care why. I just follow the data and I just follow the money and that's where it makes sense. But in my theory, is like people want to be in warmer climates and more economically driven areas. I think Housing News also reports why the Southeast remains the star of multifamily and some of the reasons from the previous slide. Perfect climate, lower costs of living, tax breaks, high paying jobs. Major metros in Texas provide a lower cost of living compared to West Coast tech hubs. Texas doesn't have any income uh, tax. Uh, whereas like Washington state has no income tax. Who wants to live in Washington? I guess I can say that since I live there, but I'm just joking. It's dark all the time. Dark at 3.30. Greenville, South Carolina, Chattanooga, Marsboro, Tennessee, and Savannah, Georgia. Now these are smaller cities that have in common is a lower cost of living. But you might see some good investment opportunities in because they, they kind of fall in this southeast sunbelt type of area. One of the appeals of Southern Charm of a smaller town is also appealing to residents. Me personally, I want to stay above markets that are definitely greater than half a million population. I don't really like those really small markets personally these days because of the market gets softer, right? Where people move right back into the city centers for jobs right now with a, a nice growth pattern right now. So all boats are flowing. I want to be in those major markets and the major markets definitely greater than a million population. In 2015, I had 11 turnkey rentals and realized that there's nothing passive about direct ownership in rental properties. This coming from an accredited investor perspective. Our group these days are mostly accredited investors, strictly looking for syndication deals for a purely passive investment strategy. One part of my portfolio is the American Home Owner Preservation, or what folks in the Hui call AHP. George Dewberry, once apartment investor and mentor to myself, is now sponsoring podcasts for the fourth year in a row. His private note fund, which by the way also accepts non-accredited investors, cuts out the middlemen and allows you to invest directly with him to fight the mortgage crisis in America. Feel good knowing that you are helping families stay in their home after buying their underwater note at a huge discount. Join him by purchasing distressed mortgages while cashing your distribution check on a monthly basis. Find something else better out there? Just let me know. Invest as little as $100 by going to ahptitle.com. And if you want the free Burn Zone book, claim it at simplepassivecashflow.com slash AHP. And don't forget to join our private investor club to get more insider access. Go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. RE Business on the Line reports that active adult communities thrive during height of pandemic. This is a sector strong performance during the global financial crisis. So it's saying that this asset sector is resistant to these types of impacts. Maybe it's because they call it a sticky renter who stays in an apartment longer than 
traditional multifamily renters do. The traditional resident stays five to six years. Um, in my opinion, most people move out in one to three years. Residents really want to be with their peers. Number one, marketing term that triggers these kind of older residents. They want to be in a quiet community with activities that cater towards their I personally don't invest in, actually I, I am in one, but I, I just, senior living seems to be a bit of a niche, t- very similar to investing in student housing, military town, short-term rentals. I I prefer not to invest in niches. I like niches, whatever you call it. I prefer to invest in like the glut of America where most people are at the lower middle class forced housing. So these next series of graphics we have here is joint comes from the Joint Center of Housing Studies from Harvard University. It comes up with great, very interesting, thought-provoking uh, articles. And I'm going to show some of the highlights here. And they're answering the question, have more people moved during the pandemic? In this graphic, I show the, the number of people in millions throughout the last few years comparing 2019, 2020, 2021. Now, one thing that is consistent amongst all the years is you're going to see a bit of a apex in the May through September periods, which I think that just confirms that we all believe, right? Those are the peak leasing months. That's when people are moving, getting ready for school. Definitely the, the holiday periods are the parts where it is a little bit lower. You see a little bit of a nice little jump in January right off the first of the year, but then things really start to go into stay frozen. And maybe that is part of the weather. January, February, like January, February is the, the lowest part of the season. But from my look at this graph, there's a slight fluctuation between 2019 being higher by a very small portion, I would say maybe a few percent points more than 2021, 2020. Here's a little bit different chart showing the temporary change of address requests, a little bit different data. So from the summer months, May through September, very consistent through the three years. But in 2020 is where you're seeing, which is the first year of the pandemic, was when things really changed in March. The people started to, you know what, I, I'm guessing a lot of these people moved out of the, where they were, maybe moved somewhere else or with their parents or with some roommates or with whoever. That's where you're seeing this huge spike, March and April of 2020, of people changing addresses. So this is an increase of 18% to the monthly trend due to patterns a- after April. I don't know how that helps your investing, but I think this just, I think this just, again, confirms that the peak movements. If you have a vacancy in your rental, you really want to get somebody in prior to August, September, especially October, November. Now this is a different chart here. Individual moves have been elevated during the pandemic. Individual moves remain elevated early 2021 before dropping with 19 million moves in January through October. And the last chart here, family moves fell apart after the onset of the pandemic and have remained at lower levels. One possible explanation is that people who were able to move as individuals had more flexibility during the pandemic and responded by packing their bags and leaving, which makes sense, right? Where those people were in a family who were a lot less able to do so and responded by hunkering down. I feel this, I have a child now and I just don't feel like I can just go wherever I want. So go figure. Switch in news here. Uh, commercial property executive reports that JP Morgan Chase makes Dallas headquarters official. So they are moving into the Chase Tower, which is in Dallas, the fourth tallest building to a smaller building half a mile away. As of September, the national office vacancy rate 
registered a 50% basis drop month over month, reaching 14.9%. But it's still 130 basis points year over year. Within the same period, Metroplex's office vacancy rate decreased month over month, but remained higher than the U.S. average clocking in at 18.2%. A hot market like Dallas, I think different asset classes, they they react differently to things like pandemics or recessions. This is just highlighting the office. But definitely office in Dallas is doing better than the other metro markets. Switching over to construction activity. Top five industrial markets for construction activity. Again, highlighting the word industrial. So this is like warehouses, not necessarily like apartments or places like that. Number one, Dallas. Number two, Phoenix. Number three, Chicago. Four, Indianapolis. And five, Empire, which is San Bernardino area. So those are the top in terms of square foot under construction. But you have to also read into the next column here, which is percentage of stock. Dallas-Fort Worth is number one on the list with most square foot up under construction of 36 million, but it's only 4.4% of their total stock. Whereas Phoenix, number two, 30 million square feet under construction is 11.4%. So you could say that Phoenix has a bigger jump in terms of their magnitude. Phoenix industrial market has been a long target for both the developers and investors owning to rapid population growth, company relocations to low relative costs, particularly compared to Los Angeles. So there's a big migration pattern from California going out to Phoenix. Other, on the top of the list, of course, Dallas-Fort Worth Metro had the highest level of industrial nation or 4.4% of inventory because of low taxes, immense population growth myriad of corporate relocations. Despite deliveries this year, nearly 20 million square feet vacancy kept a low 4.9%, one full point lower than the national figure. And this kind of just two different data sources, but industrial properties doing a little bit better than the office counterparts. But I think you can also read it to why is there the demand there? General population growth. That's where you can extrapolate. If you're in a, in a multifamily or residential investor, you kind of need to look at these types of data sources too to get clues in the news. Commercial property executive reports interest rates are heading up. Here's what to watch. Now, I, I think most investors, they freak out about interest rates going up. And here's why it doesn't really impact sophisticated investors because sophisticated investors make money based on the cap rate of what the investment is making minus the interest rate of what they're paying on their debt service. As interest rates go up, typically so do cap rates and so do rents go up exponentially. So I mean, I always say it sounds crazy, but if I welcome interest rates to go up because that means the prices of my properties are going up. And that also means that the rents are going up most likely too. What should investors be watching? Uh, pace of the tapering. So the Fed, if the Fed tapers bond purchases, the program will end in mid-2022, triggering the event for interest rates to slowly begin increasing. Now, the government takes forever to do this type of stuff. And just say history from what I've been tracking at the last decade. You know, it, when they say it's going to end in mid-22, I'm just gambling here, but I'm going to say it's probably going to be a six months to a year plus after that, where it's really going to start to be an impactful type of thing. Also watch the labor force participation rate with the Fed's stated focus on achieving maximum employment and the labor force participation rate still below pre-COVID levels in spite of the fact that enhanced unemployment benefits have been and schools have been broadly reopened. What is the Fed's role in stimulating labor force participation? growth remains to be unseen. As we all know right now, 
the power is in the favor of the workers right now, where you could probably see in the last several years where the employers had the pick of the litter. And now workers are having a little bit more rights and they're pushing their weight around, trying to get raises. At least the white collared workers are trying to do that. I just read of all these things where these long employment applications, workers looking for a job and already have jobs looking for better jobs are saying, screw you guys, I'm not doing like a three-page application. That's just ridiculous. Why would I want to spend so much time? And especially if you're not putting down the dang like salary ring. Maybe it's just, that's just me because I'm like, I don't, I'm not a worker. Right? I don't really work these days. But why would you not put the salary on your list? What person do you expect to complete your application who doesn't have the self-respect or knows their value in the workforce that wouldn't want to look how much the salary is and would wait to the end? I don't know, call me crazy. But now I think a lot of people are moving more in that direction at the point. And I'm sure it'll go the other way at some point. If you could. I digress. Uh, the last point here is the wage growth inflation rate. The Fed has largely dismissed concerns about inflation, which was just reported at 5.4% year over year. Wage growth is much stickier and can drive long-term inflation, which could pose challenges to the Fed's low interest rate environment in the coming years. Also reported by the commercial property executives, how high inflation could impact REITs. So REITs, we don't really like them. I mean, they're retail investments. They have some funky rules where they have to pay out 90% of their income to investors, which sounds good, but it's bad if you really want what's really best for the investment. But REITs, I think on an institutional level can be used to just get a little quick barometer of how things are in relation to different asset classes in the stock market world. Here they're saying it, they largely depend on the length of time it takes to study rising interest rates as long as how the high the rates get. In inflation and higher rates remain a temporary issue, U.S. equity REIT credit profiles are likely to suffer. In terms of liability duration, it's best viewed in the context of a former lease tenure. Long-term leases provide less immediate opportunity to raise rents to offset rising costs. Controversially, REITs that own operational intensive property types and shorter lease durations are better able to handle a potential spike in interest rates. So what they're saying is REITs are typically into more institutional type of act, commercial properties, office space buildings, where the, it doesn't work where you sign a one or two year lease term or one year or less with a apartment owner. Here they're, they're signing several years, sometimes even decade plus term contracts. So if there's inflation, it logically makes sense that those types of uh, leasing environments would make less sense or would hurt the REIT in that case, where the more agile and more limber investor, private equity investor investing in more residential type of properties who have that shorter time horizon are probably going to be doing better in inflation as we're going to probably see if any lay between rents going up and inflation going up. It's a pretty liquid type of correlation. It goes pretty, it's pretty instant in a way. But I think you could probably, sophisticated person could probably say that it could also work in your, say inflation goes down and we go to not infl inflation environment, but a deflation. Those shorter term pieces could probably hurt you. But what would, would probably happen in that environment, you know, with the commercial leases that are long-term 10 years, like those big companies that do those types of leases, they're no dummy. They know their power. They're going to probably just retrade whether it's ethical or it's just business. So they'll probably just say, hey, there's a deflation and we can't pay. And that's, I think that's what we've heard some complaints from some tenants or some investors who do own 
long-term triple net deals is that through the pandemic, the tenants, although there are nationally recognized names and nationally accredited good balance sheets, they just said, hey, man, hey, Mr. Little Landlord, we're not going to pay you this month. So sue us. Yeah. Imagine getting a letter from Starbucks saying, hey, we're not, we're just not going to pay you this month. What are you going to do about it? You take us to court. It is what it is. Multi-housing news says inside Texas hot single family market. And so a lot of these built to rent communities are coming up because people can't afford that they are newer properties. They are a little bit smaller and, but they're not as high end, but at least they're new. And that's what they appeal to new potential homeowners or these buyer to rent communities are coming up with. Austin, Houston, San Antonio, among the most sought after market, a trend Coming up is many consumers are choosing to rent instead of purchase. Many younger residents desiring to live in the moment, so to speak, rather than tied down to home ownership and a mortgage, which something I've always said, right? If your net worth is under half a million, quarter million, I, I typically think that it makes more sense to rent and buy investment properties. That is, if you are good with your, I guess that said, most people in this country are not good with their money. They spend money once they, if they're able to get to save it. So uh, buying a house to live in is a forced piggy bank. But more on information on that, go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash home. And if you're thinking about buying a home, maybe read that first before you make potentially the biggest financial mistake of your life. Dun, dun, dun. So finishing up this article, demand in single family rentals continues to remain well oversupply as we expect that continue for the foreseeable future. The single family rental sector and the build to rent specifically is not a fad. I see it as the idea is you build these things and you sell it to an institutional owner as a lot of the institutional money is coming into this stuff. But I am not a huge fan of wanting to hold on to this stuff long term because for the reason why you go to apartments with one roof, all the systems in one place. Sure, with these built-to-rent communities, all the properties are standardized, you standard partless, standard, and they're all in the same vicinity. So you don't have the issue of running all over town to maintain properties. You can have one central hub for your maintenance staff, but they still think that it's difficult to deal with the individual roofs, for example. There's too many things that will break on a single family home rental, whereas an apartment, you just have the interior walls of each individual unit is what you have to worry about. Literally, just count up the number of sides of the building that you have to worry about potentially people. The San Antonio's top relocation destination for Austin renters in San Antonio, the overwhelming majority of these searches were coming up from Austin. Houston was number two and Dallas was number three. So these are people searching for the places relocating in Texas. Out-of-state new renters are more likely to come from Orlando, Atlanta, and Chicago. And interesting, San Antonio's are actually looking to move to Austin with the majority of local outbound searches for the people who are in San Antonio that are looking to go elsewhere. So those are the, the, the trading. <laughs> A lot of it is just shuffling of the same people, but that's where people are looking towards. We believe that San Antonio is definitely one of those emerging markets. The Dallas is the second with the people of to move out of Austin into Dallas. The Business Journal reports the fastest rising U.S. rental markets. Number one, Phoenix, Mesa, Scottsdale, Arizona. No surprise. And that from the Dallas Business Journal. Not only do you see a Dallas Business Journal reporting that some other place other than Dallas is doing well. And then this report from 
or just following what Blackstone is doing in a recent article where they're saying that they're just quoting Blackstone, fourth quarter earnings could be up 18%. Omicron will have an impact on the economy, but the economy is strong. Unemployment at 4.2%, no layoffs, housing prices going up. Uh, recession isn't imminent. I think that's what I'm reading from a lot of my independent data sources. The only people that are saying that there's a recession are the crazy YouTubers that just want to day trade attention, get you to watch the traffic accident on the highway, as we say. The housing news also reports that Cardone Capital, uh, Uncle Grant Cardone, buys four Florida properties for $74 million of, and there was 1,700 units in that four for property portfolio. So if you do the math, and I'm going to make sure I do the math for you real quick, 74 million by 1700 is about $435,000 per unit. I looked at these properties and it doesn't look like they get any much more than $2,500 a month for rent. Just saying, purchase price again per unit, 435000 Sounds like some California prices to me. If it was me, I'd buying California for that rent-to-value ratio. But hey, in different game, he gets paid on acquisition fees, et cetera, that type of stuff. And it's more of an institutional deal, so investors don't get paid as much. Adam reports house flipping profits decrease again. Oh, I don't know why you want to be a house flipper. It's ordinary income, unless you like um, the ego of it. But really, it's not really how much money you make. It's how much money you keep and how much time and energy you put into it, which is why we like the passive route. But if you don't have money, you don't have a good paying job, then I, I get it. You got to flip some houses or go find a job. Nothing's wrong with a J-O-B. I had one. So if you guys like our community and you're looking for more other credit investors and tired of kicking tires with a bunch of the local real estate clubs and meetup groups with lower net worth guys, check out our family office group at simplepassivecashflow.com slash journey. We have over 40 or to 85 members. A bunch just joined this past. You get the e-courses. You get the bi-weekly Zoom calls. We have mini masterminds. We break up the big group into little small cohorts based on your net worth. We also teach people about a lot of these ideas of wealth building. We have mentors within the group. So a lot of people stay, stick around after the first year. It's a big on community, but it's within this close-knit circle. Also, my book is releasing January 25th. So if you guys can help me out, check out the book for free. Let's go listen to, I, I recorded a bunch of videos of myself reading it, like Father Fireplace Storytime. Go check them out and go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash book. Yes, you can also text the word remote to 314-665-1767 to get access to the rental light e-course to learn how to get started investing in real estate, the rental properties, like how I did. But now we're going to get going to some of the, we see some questions queuing up. I see an infinite banking question there. We'll get that to that to the end. If anybody has any questions or comments, then we'll try and get to that too. So, so this is a personal account of what I've been doing up this past month and to round out the year 2021 what a big year again but we hired some more staff trying to find people that are better than myself at doing certain things so i can focus less on answering little investor relation questions and focusing on things that i should be doing which is to getting into infiltrating other circles of other family office groups other sophisticated investors finding deal flow and doing exactly what in my opinion my job is and not screwing around with editing podcasts like how I did in 2016 or 
that doing those types of stuff. And as I'm learning as a relatively new entrepreneur, it's not about doing things myself. It's about building the team after a certain point in leadership. The book is dropping seven or the 25th of this month. Go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash book to check it out. Uh, next month, this uh, this coming month or next week, we have the retreat. Super excited about that. And I'm going to tell my team, hey, let's go out there and let's go change some lives. The thing that changed my life was meeting other accredited investors and other just remote investors investing in turnkeys without even seeing the prop. I thought I was crazy until I met a whole bunch of people doing it. And I felt like I wasn't crazy anymore. So if you think you're crazy for not investing in the 401k and the stock market and, and buying your own house to live in and taking money out of your 401k and not doing a Roth IRA, not doing a health savings account, not doing a 529. Who doesn't do a 529? You must be a, a jackass for not doing that. You don't care about your kids. There's a different way. You know, infinite banking is one of those ways you do a better 529. But there's a lot of these strategies that I learned that the wealthy do that we're going to compile a lot of the people who are leading in that direction. At, in Hawaii, January 14th to the 17th. It's not, eh, it's probably too late to register, but you can check out the videos that we do coming up. Some other significance things that I've got significance for myself. Close another deal in Glendale, Arizona, and just keep adding to the portfolio. Pizza spread between class A and class C deals, value add development, and B value add plays. To me, like what I'm trying to just invest in workforce style housing, stuff for the regular people that do in the way I see it. Pretty recession proof. But what are some things that are concerning to me? Uncertain Omicron thing is looming. But I think not to say that's not important, but from an economic standpoint, I don't think that there's huge concerns over the economy. Tax implications potentially is something I'm a little, potentially a little worried about. Although a lot of the scary things that they did discuss about, like getting rid of solo 401k, self-directed IRAs, really inhibiting all of that stuff, getting rid of 1031, this just went away. And I think it's important to note two years from now when the same talk happens again, that, hey guys, this happened before, nothing happened, don't freak out about it. This is just a posturing thing that goes on in Congress, that things just don't really change, but generally move in certain directions. But there's, I think, when I say tax implications, I guess what I was thinking of was were there going to be more types of solid case law on like land conservation easements or, I don't know, can't think of any. Uh, Nothing really concerns me with that type of stuff either, especially when you're a passive investor and you have a lot of passive income. the, The deductions from the investments from your depreciation is going to offset. That's going to be your game. It's the people with the ordinary income problems, the people who make high salaries, those are the people who have to get your money into passive investing so you can get trade your passive investing money for your or passive investing income for your ordinary income so you can use that to use a passive loss to lower your, uh, your income level. Somebody had a question, what do you think about interest rates impacts in 2022? As I mentioned earlier in the call here, I don't really care too much because who cares if the interest rates go up, then my cap rates are, the returns I make from the investments that I'm already in are going to go up in parallel. Go look, go Google interest rates versus cap rates. They jump, they go up and down in tandem for the most part. Sure, sometimes they squeeze a little bit together and the delta gets small. But as investors, that delta is very important because essentially what we're doing is we're taking that delta, which is the spread between the interest rate, which you borrow the money at and what you make in the investment and you apply debt and leverage. And that's 
it's a simple thing, but a lot of people just don't think about it like that. And interest rates are going to d- dance up and down and so are cap rates. But as long as you're in the game, it really doesn't matter. But where the game changer happens is if you're playing a game of value add, you're putting in improvements, you're changing out countertops, you're adding playground equipment, you're pressure spraying the side of the buildings to increase revenue on the buildings. Now that is called force appreciations. It's much more powerful in commercial real estate as opposed to changing out the countertops, rehabbing the kitchen, oh, crossing your fingers that a home buyer, retail buyer will pay more. That likely happens. That happens a lot. But on the commercial side, it's a lot more of a sure thing, right? Because properties are based on that operating income divided by the cap rate. And that is something you have control over your destiny. So you're always going to have a spread in the interest rates and the cap rate. But where you take your own destiny in your own hands is when you take that, you, you increase the value of the building by doing value add. Maybe you decrease the expenses too while you're at it. But call it a cavalier way of doing things. But I don't really care about interest rates. And plus, like the interest rates don't really change too much too quickly. This is just coming from a guy who's been doing this since 2009. Every time the Fed says they're going to raise the rent, rates is ooh who cares if i was a home buyer and just buying a house then i'd kind of worry about it a little bit should i be paying 3.7 3.5 percent but when you're in a commercial grade investor doing value on your properties it doesn't really matter as much i think when you are looking at the returns as an investor and you look how much money came from just the pure cash flow or that that play between the interest rates where the interest rates really mattered and the value add portion that you build that equity up, it's typically like the vast majority is coming from the value add portion of it. And another thing to think about too is when you're, I said, when you're value adding the the properties, that's when you're taking your own future in your own. But we've discussed this many times and that's what we try and do here. We try and keep things very simple and easy in this crazy world. In some ways, I've had some certainty in my life. We got some closings coming up Q1. Pop some champagne bottles, some full cycle deals. But then, you know, that money's probably just going to go right back into the next deal again and again. Boo. But hey, that's what I enjoy, right? Like, I think a lot of investors have this attitude of grow, plant some seeds, grow garden, grow some flowers, grow some things with some more seeds and plant the seeds. We had a deal where we returned some capital due to less construction scope. That's always nice, right? When you overestimate construction scope and you have some money come back got a development this is just the state of the market like people want to buy this stuff at crazy prices this is the time when you want to be developing and doing value adds to sell to more of that larger investor or the retail mom and pop investor who doesn't know any better and another thing i'm trying to get rid of all these single family homes i got one left in alabama if anybody wants to buy it they get an offer. Actually, don't. You probably, you guys are all real estate investors or mom and pop. So you'll probably give me a lowball offer. Don't waste my time, please. But I'll be really happy when that one's gone. Okay, really looking forward to the retreat. Hopefully, we can make a lot of impact on different people and make a lot of connections because that's what it's all about. Some things I bought, a bunch of these COVID tests. What a cool world we live in where you can test yourself to see if you have a disease in real time. Just think about that. Like, what a cool time to be alive. You know, that to me, this is amazing. And now they have like terms for different Delta, Omicron or whatever. The fact that they even have like names for this type of stuff. They didn't have this 20, 30 years ago, I'm thinking. Something else I bought, we had a first kid recently and my wife didn't drive anywhere. So I thought it would be a good idea to 
not have a car for her because she's not going to drive anyway. But that didn't go on for very long. Apparently, everybody, all adults need their own car, is what I learned. So I finally bought this GB80, which is a cool car. So I was like, I wanted a Porsche because Porsches are cool, but they're overpriced. The the sticker price might be like, I don't know, $60,000, $70,000, which doesn't seem bad, but there's absolutely nothing in that car. If you want like half the amount of like upgrades, it's going to, you're going to turn that Porsche into a $100,000 Porsche. And same thing goes for Mercedes, GLE, BMW X5. What I like about this Genesis, this GB80, is it comes fully loaded with even more than what those other cars have. For example, they're like the button on the thing moves back and forth without me going, getting in the car. So this is great when I like some jerk like parks next to me and I have to put in the car seat, the baby car seat. Like I can move the car out and put the car seat without hitting their car. It's cool when I go like this and I make it like Luke Skywalker, Star Wars too. It makes it look like I'm moving it. There's these like shade, privacy shades in the back that is makes me feel like I'm in a Maybach Mercedes. The dash is 3D. It's got all like the standard like adaptive cruise control type of stuff. If you guys have a modern car, you guys know what all these things are. But like this thing is pretty much fully loaded. The only thing that it didn't have that was in the higher level was like the soft closed doors where you can just be like, let go of the door and it closes itself. Maybe that'll be in the next car we get. Or maybe we'll just have flying cars by then. But if you're looking for a extremely good car that's it's like value, maybe that's what the V stands for. Good value GB80. I would go take a look at it. But and you can't beat Mercedes, BMW or whatever, Porsche. That's that you're paying for the badge, which I think is fine too. But only get one of these questions here. So we had a question about infinite banking. After you take out the maximum amount of loan against cash value of the whole life insurance policy to invest in syndication deals, is it better to fund the paid up addition to increase the amount of cash value in the whole life policy or is it better to pay off the loan first? I think the important goal is to not lose your the ability to keep overfunding or the PUA, paid up addition. So some of these carriers, or some of the ways you configure it are very inflexible. Like I have, I'm actually very confused by this too, because I have three different policies, three different carriers and three different really wonky restrictions that I have to, or like circumstances I need to hit to not lose my PUA. So like one of them, I have to keep funding at every two out of every three years. The other one has some kind of five-year look back. The other... One of them is the most is the most flexible where I have I can just fund it whenever I just skip it. But a lot of this is in the Infinite Bank eCourse. You guys can get free access to that at simplepassivecashflow.com slash banking. But that would be the first thing I would look at is how does the how does the flexibility component look for that for your policy? And this is where it this becomes very personal, right? And you may not know know like how your deals are cashing out or your windfalls are cash or your income at your day job that's just you're going to have the best idea on how to do this and make the best judgment call to prioritize filling that PUA up first you're going to be able to hit the PUA next year and the year after then maybe you might prioritizing paying off the loan but because you're mentioning that I think that's a big newbie mistake I see people is they have this loan on their infinite banking the whole like IBC 
but then they freak out about paying off the loan. And I get it, like where it comes from. Like, it's just, no. And I think it's no different than like when you first got a HELOC on your home, there was like a payment occurring in the background, but you learned after some time that, eh, don't freak about it. It's just there, right? Yeah, you're making money elsewhere at a higher, higher frequency, higher rate. And that's why you're doing it, right? Essentially, we're arbitraging the money in here. But when we have the big windfalls like cash, this is a good place to put it. And the paid up addition, the way I think about it is every year or so you get another container unless you don't start filling them up. And again, that was where I was mentioning all of them had different circumstances. Some policies are like you get another container for the next year, but you unless you filled up last year's, you don't get another one. So that's where you have to look at your policy and then you have to kind of forecast on what you're going to be doing in the future. I just speak from my own experience. Like I had deals cash out recently at the end of the year and I was looking at my policies. I had to pay off, I had to do the insurance premium first. I guess that's the priority, right? You got to do the premiums first, which is usually a very small amount unless you're you're doing a jacked up if in a banking where the insurance premium is high as a percentage should be definitely be like less 30% of the premium that your guy's screwing you. Pay that first. Then you have to look at, should I pay the paid up addition? And you, I elected to, I didn't realize it, but I, I owed like a, a pretty large sum loan. I have a lot of times they don't allow you to take out even more loan if you don't pay the premium. So again, yeah, pay the premium first, which is, should be a very small portion. should be pretty easy to hit that. But then, the PUA next. And then, so what I did, because my stuff is confusing with the real phone, I made a little spreadsheet where I have the anniversary dates and then I have 2021 insurance premium, 2021 PUA, and then 2022 insurance premium, 2022 PUA amounts. And then repeat that for each year for insurance premium PUA. And my thing is what I, and then I also have a, a column all in the left side where I have my cash value and I also have the outstanding loan. And this is how I go. This is my dashboard. So I know that I'm paying off the premiums and paying into the PUA, but I may be also carrying a loan too. And that may be the smart thing for me based on my situation. So I don't know if it's beat it to death there, but if you guys want to dig into it, I'm open to doing a coaching call but you guys gotta record it right like i say you gotta put it out for everybody clean advice if not just sign up for the family office group stop screwing around get around other people doing this stuff and you start to learn this stuff uh, do osmosis and you start to build a peer group to learn this stuff but with that this episode was also sponsored by gba genesis but anyway we'll see you guys next month and thanks for listening bye This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.